Thank you, Mr. President, and good morning to all. Good morning. I see lots of smiling faces, and it's not because I'm here, it's because Carol is here. As Carol knows, a lot of people in here, and I saw you greeting her this morning. Ask Carol she has some bio-information. She says, well, I have some. A lot of these people already know me, and what you say may not be what they remember. <laughs> here goes. Uh, Carol has been a member of RUMC since the middle 80s, moved here around the early 70s, and prior to 1973, she was married. Her husband was an Army officer, and they lived all over, both in the U.S. and as well as abroad. If I remember the numbers correctly, Carol, there were something like 22 different homes in 26 years. So that's a lot of, that's closer. That's a lot of moving around. During that time, she also was able to teach. She taught English to Thai-speaking people in Bangkok, and she's had some other teaching experiences while abroad. She has, over the last several years, made a lot of Bible studies, been involved and has led a lot of different Bible studies. She has a desire now to share that knowledge, and she's agreed, obviously, to come share some with us. She has three sons, two daughters-in-law, and two grandsons, the youngest of whom is enjoying his sophomore year at Auburn. Any other Auburn fans in here? Well, one thing she didn't put down is something I remember when I first got to know Carol. We were in a very unique location. Some in this room were also there at the same time. But she led our devotion while we were on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. So welcome, Carol. Thank you. I think I do. Thank you much. That that was quite an experience, too. I'm not familiar with this mic, so if anybody can't hear me, just raise your hand. I told Al I could probably do this without a mic. I've never been one of those sweet little tiny voices that, <laughs> no. My, in fact, my grandmother used to tell me to tone it down a bit. But let, let us just say a word of prayer, please. Lord, we thank you for this marvelous moment when we can come here today and worship you by studying your word. Lord, we are aware that there are countries in the world where we could not do this, and we pray for those people. Please, Lord, move this humble speaker out of the way and bring your word to those who are here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have, from time to time, called this lesson Rebel with a Cause. And I'm a little bit hesitant to do that because sometimes I I get a reaction that's a little... Mm, maybe I, maybe that's not the right name. But anyway, the first, what I do to my poor Sunday school classes, they're always my guinea pig when I come up for, with a new lesson. So the first time I got up and said in my Sunday school class, I'm going to teach rebel with a cause and Jesus is the rebel, one of our members said, well, I find it really, really hard to think of Jesus as a rebel. And we do today. I also find it hard to think of George Washington and Patrick Henry as a rebel. But the British did. And the world that Jesus came into was quite a different world than the one we live in. 
He was born into a different culture, a different time and place. When a leader of a movement comes along, there are always those who think of him as a rebel, him or her, and then there are those who follow and are excited about the cause. So that was sort of the world that Jesus came into. The parables that we will um, get into after we do a bit of a lead-in to them are called the apologetic parables, or the parables of things lost. And apologetic in this sense means explaining. It's from the same root word. If you apologize to someone, it usually carries some explanation with it. So the apologetic parables are Jesus' explanation of what he has come for. But let's think first about the world that Jesus came into. And Al mentioned, greatest trip of my life, trip to Israel that he and I and a number of other people here in this group were on. And you will never, ever, if you have not been to Israel, I certainly advise you to go. But you'll never, ever, ever read the Bible just the same way after you've been there. Because you see so much of the difference in what the world is like, what the culture is like, even today. Now, Jesus came into this culture over 2,000 years ago. So we are far removed in time and culture and learning and understanding in so many ways from the world that Jesus came into. We miss so much that's in the parables because we don't understand the people that Jesus was talking to got a big mental picture. He he was a marvelous storyteller, a charismatic teacher that people just followed and hung on to. They say you could fry eggs and after being over there on a rock in Capernaum, I believe that because it was hot over there and we were there in September when it was supposed to be cooling down a little. So, but believe me, it was hot. So people hung on to his words, followed him, even in that stifling heat, would sit there all day and listen to what he said. His stories were shocking for the time. He made references to God that were unheard of and that the synagogue, quote, church of the time, although, of course, we know it was not what we call a church, but they considered so much of what he said absolutely shocking. One thing he did, and fairly frequently, and we do it commonly today, is to put a figure of God, a symbol in a story, a man that stood for God, and then tell the story. Well, that was absolutely shocking in their day. They didn't even make reference to the fact that that God had any kind of human characteristics or emotions or whatever. Just as, for instance, if they wanted to say God was happy about it, they would not dare say that. They would say something like the angels in heaven rejoiced because they weren't going to say God rejoiced because that would make him like human. Well, we live in the era after Jesus, of course, where Jesus actually came to earth as a man. So this puts a whole different perspective on it from what these people have. And, of course, most of the people 
he was talking to were illiterate. So the parables or stories were the best way to teach. You always remember the story, right? Kind of like remembering a good joke or whatever. If he told it to them in the form of a good story, they were going to remember it. But so much of the language of it we miss because we just don't get the mental picture that they had when he told these stories. Um, just a few examples. Uh, one of the short, short parabolic sayings, you, you don't put new wine in an old flask. What kind of picture do you get of that? I could tell. Go ahead. Okay, you don't. The people then got a very vivid picture. What I can relate to, and I'm going <laughs> to tell something about my age here, but a lot of you are right there with me. <laughs> when, when I was growing up, and I was a farm girl, the latest rage in the kitchen was the pressure cooker. We had a garden. My mom loved putting those fresh vegetables in that pressure cooker because they cook moist and good and everything. One day I'm sitting doing my homework, I hear this explosion in the kitchen. <laughs> Can you relate? I had, on this particular day, she had put greens in that pressure cooker and they were hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> They were plastered all over the white front of the refrigerator. It must have taken a week to clean that kitchen up. Well, that's what happens if you put red, or you put, and it was red wine usually, if you put new wine in an old flask. It's going to ferment, and at some point in time, that thing's going to explode, and you're going to have that kind of mess. Well, the people that Jesus told this story to got the image. You and I can get the image of the pressure cooker. We just totally miss the red wine bit, right? So there's so many stories like that. And there's so many meanings in some of the parables where we usually get the main thread of the thought, but we miss the main thing. For instance... um, the lady with the, the woman with the issue of blood has, has several of them in it. For one thing, she touched his hem. Well, what did she probably touch, actually, that was interpreted as him? They wore their rank, military background, they wore their rank on their tassels, which were attached to the hem. When David stole Solomon's cut off his hem, he probably had cut off the thing that designated his rank, which was why it was such an upsetting experience. So we miss all that sort of thing. Also in that same parable about the woman with the issue of blood, what did he call her when he addressed her? Daughter. Daughter. Why did he call her daughter? It was against the law at the time for a woman to speak to a man in public if she were not related to him. She had committed a big crime. No wonder the story says she was frightened, right? No wonder she was frightened. She was in trouble. So his calling her daughter excused her from being in that trouble because it made them related, obviously. So we miss all those many, many things 
when we study the parables. So they were shocking in Jesus' time. The people loved them. But what about the established church? What did they think of them? Let's talk about the world Jesus came into. (coughs) What was happening in Israel at the time that Jesus was born? Who was in charge there? The Romans Romans had conquered Israel. They were in charge. There was basically peace at the time. And then there was a substrata. Tell me about that. Who was that? Who, Who did the people really turn to for guidance and leadership? The Pharisees, the synagogue, the priest, etc., etc. So that was the second level of the culture and the part that most of the people really thought those were the rules. Now, it was a very different, and I'll, I'll use the word church here, but we know that it was not church, right? Church is something we did under Christ. But the quote, church of the time, was based not on Jesus' teaching, of course, primarily on the Law and the Prophets, the Ten Commandments, and I think it was 613 rules they had to follow, tying into the Ten Commandments just to be sure that they never disobeyed any of the Ten Commandments. They had to have 613 other rules, most of which were negative. Don't do Don't do this, don't do that. Now, who in the world could be expected to follow 613 different rules? (laughs) So the people, the masses, were condemned from the beginning because they didn't read. They certainly couldn't (laughs) memorize all those rules. They didn't have a chance. Now, God has put these people in charge of his flock. Flock and sheep is another reference that was used from the Old Testament into the New. Of course, we all know Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd, but it was a term that had come along as far back as Isaiah that we were God's flock. Sheep aren't very smart animals, I'll tell you that. And and we give evidence of being sheep lots of times, I think. <laughs> the, the, of course, the message of Christ came first to the shepherds or the sheep herders. So they were a part of the, a very important part of the culture back then. None of us here, I don't believe, has ever herded sheep or probably even raised a sheep or owned a sheep. I can tell you one thing. I was the daughter of a country veterinarian. In the low country of South Carolina, they don't have many sheep. It's mostly cattle and horses and pigs. But there was one farm that did have sheep and goats on it that I used to visit with my dad. Those animals smell bad. I can tell you that. And probably these guys that were herding them didn't smell much better than the sheep did. And when the shepherd carried home that lost sheep, he was carrying home a smelly creature. I'll tell you that. So we we miss all that in the stories as we hear them today. So into this world is the one Jesus came. And why why did he come? What was the purpose of his coming? Were things just rocking along fine and the Pharisees were 
running things well and life was just going like God wanted it. No, 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 absolutely not. Let's look back at Isaiah for just a minute. Here we are. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. And let's read a little bit about what the Messiah was expected to be. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So this is one of the many predictions of the coming Messiah. Now, from the root, the stump of Jesse also is from the line of David, of course. Would you think that this passage might lead them to believe that they were getting a new king in the form of the image of David? I, I would think it might lead you to think that. So they were certainly not expected, as one of the Pharisees had said at one point, what good could come from Galilee? I mean, a little podunk town. And this is, we call him a carpenter. This is another thing with the interpretation and the words that the first interpreters use. Actually, he was probably more of a stonemason than a carpenter. And I get two different visual images when I think of those two trades. I've, I've been involved in the new home business over a number of years, and the guys that do the carpentry aren't necessarily that big and strong. Those that do that stonework are pretty husky and pretty stout people and muscular and so forth. Now, the Bible purposely does not tell us what Jesus looks like because that's not what God wanted us to know about. But it gives me a different different mental image of him to know that he was a stonemason than to think he was a carpenter. So, again, interpretation over the years influences our thinking of the Bible. So Jesus is coming into this world where the church of the time was controlled by the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, how did this come to be? Just in brief, brief. God had appointed the tribe of Levi, right? Put them in charge of his flocks. And what were they supposed to do? Just how were they supposed to run the show there? They were supposed to take care of the people, right? And spread God's word. Instead, they adopted an exclusive right theory that theirs was, they were the ones that were entitled to God's favor, and no one else was. One of the mind thoughts of that day was that if you were wealthy, it was because God had blessed you. If you were poor, you were a sinner and God had not blessed you. What do you think that did to the mindset of the masses? 
They were hopeless sinners, right? According to what the synagogue was teaching. So this is why Jesus came into the world, because the synagogue was not being run according to the plan that God had set up. And we know that Jesus came in and gave these people a really hard time about it. I mean, who who here thinks that Jesus was politically correct? <laughs> how how about turning over the tables in the temple? Was that politically correct? How about calling them a den of vipers? I mean, he was not politically correct. He came to straighten things out and I, I think he was the kind of person who believed in, as we say, calling a spade a spade. He did not take umbrance to their rules and et cetera. He, he was going to change these things. You know, um, poor old Pontius Pilate has been cursed through the centuries, and I'm just thinking he was a guy who was there at the wrong place at the wrong time. Ten years sooner or ten years later, he wouldn't, we wouldn't curse him in church every Sunday morning, you know. But, but he was guilty of being politically correct. He didn't really want to condemn Jesus. He tried every way he could to get out of it. His wife had a dream and a vision and he didn't want to do that thing, but he erred on the side of political correctness. Are we still doing that today? And, and when I think of the synagogue of the day, and then I look at all of us, and I, I know at least half of you in here and have for a long, long time. I mean, we're the folks who are the leaders of this church. We attend church on Sundays. We're involved in the committees and the studies and so forth and so on. Where would we have been when this upstart from Galilee came along claiming he was the son of God? What do you think our attitude would have been? Telling us that we were doing everything wrong, etc. I've often questioned and wondered what kind of a stance as a church we would take today if that sort of thing happened in our world. So God says don't judge. So we will leave that judgment to him to decide. So basically Jesus came into a world based with all these rules and regulations and religion based on that, we have grown up in a world where we've more been taught the golden rule, right? We still believe in the Ten Commandments, but we also believe what the greatest commandment is, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, right? So we've come up in a different culture. It's hard for us to look back and see Jesus as a rebel, but he really was in this era to the established quote-unquote church of the time. As I've been thinking about, and when I'm going to present a lesson, I usually start thinking on it several weeks ahead, and I don't think I've ever presented one exactly the same way I did the time before, and I'm listening for what God might want me to hear, and so forth. And I'm in the kitchen cleaning up and thinking about, that's good thinking time, it's brainless work, you know, cleaning up the kitchen. So I'm cleaning up the kitchen the other night, and I suddenly realized that Bill O'Reilly is reviewing a very young man who's written a book entitled 
Jesus is bigger than religion. And it hit me. Not much has changed in just over 2,000 years. This is what Jesus came in the world to say. I am bigger than your religion. And why are we still having to write books and preach it today that Jesus is bigger than what we sometimes refer to as religion? So anyway, I just thought that was an interesting thought. So Jesus told stories to get his messages across. We refer to these stories as parables. Do we still use parables today? Ministers often use them from the platform still today, from the podium, right? Or when we're making reference to things, we often use. When, if a simile, if you take one thing and have it mean stand for something else and tell a story, that's basically a parable. If I say it's raining cats and dogs out there, Everybody knows there are no cats and dogs falling out of the sky, right? But that's basically a parable. So Jesus taught very beautifully with these parables. And let me check. What time do you guys like to break or finish up here? 10.30. Well, that's a dangerous thing to say. <laughs> when the, the time Al made reference to on the boat that time, they had to shut me up and tell it, it tell me it was time for the boat to go in, so you don't want to say that. <laughs> anyway, um, I think we will do the first of the three parables, and that should take us about up to 10.30, so if, if that works for you guys, that's the way we'll go. So anyway, the parables of things lost are in th- all three of the synoptic gospels, but we're going to refer to the book of Luke to study today. So before we do that, let me just read one other short one here. Luke 5. 31 is where Jesus is telling his purpose right out in plain language to the Pharisees who are questioning, and they were constantly questioning why he hung out with the people he hung out with, right? Why he ate with sinners. What what were you doing when you ate with people, when you shared a meal with people in those days? What was the significance of that? For one thing, it meant forgiveness, that you were forgiving them any wrong they'd done you, that you were accepting them. It was a whole total acceptance of that person if you shared a meal with them. And, of course, the Pharisees and the scribes were constantly criticizing Jesus because he ate with the taxpayers and prostitutes and so forth. So in in one instance, Jesus just comes right out and tells them very plainly his mission here. And in Luke 5, 31, this is what he says. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I'm not thinking that Jesus is thinking that these Pharisees are really that righteous when he says this. But he's appealing to their senses here and telling it in a way that they will understand because they consider themselves the righteous, right? So he's telling them his purpose for being here. 
So let's go over to Luke 15. And the first parable of the things lost that we're going to study is the parable of the lost sheep. And I, when, when we read the Bible, it's always good to back up just a little bit from the verse you're concentrating on because there's usually a little background there. Who Jesus is talking to when he tells a story can make a big difference in, in the ultimate meaning of the story. So I'm going to back up a verse or two here. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now let's talk, let's stop there and talk a little bit about the situation here. Jesus, of course, from time to time referred to himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd was the one who usually owned the sheep and was really attached to them just as we're attached to our dogs and our kitties that we have for pets. Sometimes they, there were hired shepherds who if the wolf came, they're going to turn around and run because those sheep mean nothing to them. So that's what Jesus means when he refers to himself as the good shepherd. He owns the sheep. He loves the sheep. Not all of them did. Now, the job of shepherding, generally what's happening is the shepherd or several shepherds for a big flock are going to leave in the morning and take these sheep out to pasture. And the more they graze, the further away they have to get to find more grazing land. There's not a lot of good grazing land in Jerusalem. They have to search for it. And there are enemies of the sheep. There are thieves, and lions and wolves are the main prey on sheep. So they take these sheep out during the day, and they're guiding them along, and a herd of a hundred probably had two or three shepherds involved, the main shepherd and a couple of assistants. So it's not like he actually went off and left those 99 by themselves. So somewhere along the way, and by the way, they had names for these sheep. Remember, he says, the sheep know my voice. When the shepherd went to the fold in the morning, there might be two or three flocks in that fold that they, in the village where they put them overnight. When he goes and calls, his sheep are going to come. The other sheep are not going to pay any attention to his voice. That's why Jesus says, the sheep know my voice. So, and they might have names like Flop-Eared and Puffy-Tail or whatever. He gives them names, so he knows them by name. And he makes reference to that in the scriptures that, that we sometimes miss, too. So anyway, this shepherd has called his sheep, and he and his helpers have gone out, and they're grazing their sheep, and, and they've probably gotten a good long way from home. Now let's talk about the behavior of sheep a little bit. 
They're not real smart animals, as we've said. And they're grazing along, and occasionally what happens is one of them's looking for more food over this way or something, and he wanders off without realizing he's leaving the herd. Now, what's going to happen when that sheep looks up and realizes he's out there all by himself? What do you think? He's going to panic. And do you know what a sheep does when he panics? He basically faints. <laughs> and he he just falls over and he lies there. So obviously he's going to be a very easy prey for the wolves or the lions or whatever that night. So if he leaves that sheep out there overnight, he's a goner. No doubt about it. So... Let's say he's walked out eight or ten miles that day, and those of us who have walked in the heat there know that's a long, hard, dirty walk. So he's taking the sheep out, he's bringing them back to home, and he realizes old Toby sheep is not in the group. Oh my. So, sure enough, he's turning around and going back. I gotta go find him because he's gonna be a goner by morning if I don't go get Toby. And of course the whole village knows about it. It's probably a total of 20 or 30 families in the whole biz, in the whole village and, and they're all concerned. They're kind of like a big family, kind of like us folks here are. So they're all concerned about his lost sheep and he's going back to find it. So, we can envision later into the evening sun setting, and finally here he comes trudging. Now what he's going to do, he's going to grab, <laughs> not enough hands, I'm loud. He's going to grab two feet here, two feet here. He's going to put that sheep over his shoulder, and it probably weighs about 70 pounds. So he's got 70 pounds of furry, smelly sheep, and he's trudging home. So, that said, let's go on with the parable. So he he does not leave him. He goes out and he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So what he's saying really is that God is rejoicing over this one lost sinner. The Pharisees are having an awful hard time with that story because they don't look on the peasants and the masses of people as worth going to a lot of trouble for. So Jesus is bringing a whole new idea into the world, and it's not an idea that they're real fond of. So this is the first of our stories of things lost. It's a picture of God's grace, but it's much more than that. It's a vision of Jesus' reason for coming. It's a story about why Jesus needed to come to save us all. So let's leave it right there for now. We'll take up the next two next week. And I thank you for having us. Have a blessed week. And see you next week.
Thank you very much, Carol. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Well, let's leave you today with my thought for the week. I've heard this before, and I think it's a good one to remember. If you cannot do great things, do small things in a great way. So with that, I love you all. Bye-bye.